as we gather this morning on this very rainy, very dark, very cloudy Sunday morning, in here there is light. Among each other, with God walking among us, there is light. And we gather to celebrate that on this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer to invite the Spirit into this place? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly, for we are in need of you. Though undeserving, we have found mercy in your sight and excitedly await your coming. On this dark, rainy Sunday morning, we are reminded we are in a world in darkness, in need of your light, emerging little by little as we watch in anticipation. Deliver us, Lord, as we await the blessed hope and coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, emancipator of the captive Israel from the hands and the will of the wicked. We await the day you will come again and reveal yourself to us here, now, as you once entered into the world in the incarnation of Jesus. We have remembered the stories of your birth and life on earth so fondly through the generations, and on this day, we gather to begin celebrating it once again. It is through your mercy, God, and the sacrifice of Jesus that we have been extended salvation and bound to God in eternity. Through this holy birth, life, death, and resurrection, we are freed from our prisons of death, and we are able to shift our gaze back upwards towards you, Lord, to do all that you have called us to do. You are the one who extends arms reaching out, shaking us by the shoulders to listen, with hands hammering at the door, always knocking, saying, there is good news. This is what we will proclaim in response to your spirit. As we enter into and dwell in this season of Advent, open our hearts to remember that story, retelling it over and over again, and rejoicing in the words of the prophets proclaiming your coming. Let us not be ones to disown your name publicly, but rather have our minds and actions be transformed by angels in dreams, as Joseph was. Let us not be ones who lose hope or doubt when we hear your good news, but gain hope and blessed assurance in your coming. Free us of our fear and open us to your Holy Spirit, allowing us to remember you and remember the birth of our Savior with ready hearts, prepared to be moved to change moved to devotion, moved to service throughout everywhere we walk, demonstrating the good news of the love that we have witnessed. Move us to rejoice, Lord, in our Emmanuel. Allow us to take heart, for God is with us. Rescue us from the darkness of a world immersed in suffering and sadness and reorient our gaze to recognize you right here beside us. God has and will fulfilled everything that was said through the prophets. Lord, guide us and be with us always in our preparation and meditation of your coming with spirits ready to receive you. We are ready for you, Lord, for the word to become flesh. Come walk among us and make us aware of all your steps. Jesus is coming. We must get ready. Amen.
that that carol for me has always been uh, such an important part of my own advent journey and my christmas journey and that particular arrangement um, i appreciate because in many ways it sort of shakes its fist at the violent places of life and if you know the story of i heard the bells on christmas day it's it's a lament in many ways by henry henry wadsworth longfellow who, after a series of tragedies, the, the catastrophic death of his wife and then the, the wounding of his son in the Civil War. Uh, and by the time 1863 came around, he no longer was even writing in his journal, which for a person of words like Longfellow on Christmas Day, is just absolutely silent after several years of a diminished sort of enthusiasm for life at all. And yet this hope toward a peace that comes not from within, and as Danny said so well, not because we manufacture it or fake it, but instead comes when we welcome and experience the embrace of God with us, of Emmanuel. It doesn't set everything in life right, but it aligns our lives with the righteousness of God. And as we come alongside God's goodness, there is a peace that Scripture calls a peace that passes all of our understanding. And so it is in expectation, it is in hope, it is in anticipation of that peace that we settle into Scripture today at the beginning of things. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, he was found, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. Literally translated, because he was righteous. And yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. One of the things that's often lacking in scripture stories uh, that we sorely lack in our visual generation is, is some description of what people looked like. Every once in a while, you'll get some sort of narrative flourish that lets us know David had red hair or something like that, uh, that Goliath was exceedingly tall and strong. But we know so little about Joseph. We don't know what he looked like. We can speculate, but we don't know how old he is. Everything we know about Joseph is wrapped up in that one verse, in verse 19. The only description of Joseph has nothing to do with his physical, uh, his physical characteristics or any of the things that we might want to latch on to. Instead, it is stated loudly and clearly, Joseph was known as a righteous man. And so we hear that Joseph is righteous. And that's a word that in Hebrew is the word tzaddik. In Greek, we run into it all the time in the New Testament. It's, it's dikaios, or righteousness is dikaiosune. And this is an important word that plays out throughout the teachings of the Bible. That to be righteous is an aspirational goal. We would love to have that reputation. If no one knew anything about what I looked like, that would be merciful. But boy, if they knew that my life looked righteous, out loud and in the world, that was something to aspire to. Joseph was righteous. And what that meant in Joseph's community was that he was known for his uncompromising observance and obedience to Torah, to the law of Moses. So we can speculate, at least what that might imply, that Joseph would not eat unclean food, that Joseph would not mix with the wrong kinds of people, that he wouldn't keep his business open even on the Sabbath, even if they were short on cash that month, he would close on the Sabbath to keep it holy. He was righteous. That was his identity, and everyone knew that about him. As one commentator said, so if there are other people in the village who wanted to have ham sandwiches some Saturday with tax collectors, uh, they would not invite Joseph. He would not come, and he would not approve. But like I said, that's what everybody wanted to be. We often look at heroes in faith that way, don't we? They, they sort of are our proxy or our surrogates for our own faithfulness. We look up to them because they can be righteous in a sense, for us, but we know deep down we want to embody that. We want to be that sort of person. If you're an athlete, you want to be an all-star. If you're a football player, you want to be in the Super Bowl. If you're, if you're uh, an actor in theater, you might want an Emmy or a Grammy or something like that. You want to aspire toward the, the very pinnacle of your calling. In Joseph's community, in Joseph's day and time, an Israelite wanted to be tzaddik, wanted to be righteous. And being righteous meant that people looked up to you. In a sense, it meant that you were somebody. People would smile when they would say your name. 
or they would look to each other and say, oh, that we could be like that. That was Joseph. He was a righteous man. But today we discover that this righteous person has a problem. Not a problem with being righteous exactly, but instead the perfection and purity of that righteousness is now challenged because the woman to whom he has promised in marriage is going to have a baby. And whoever the father is, Joseph knows it is not him. Nazareth is a very small town. And as a general rule, small towns know things awfully quickly. When we talk about small towns, sometimes, like, you may have watched Hee Haw, like I did, once upon a time. And you remember there would always be that part where everybody was sort of gathered together, and they say, Scottsville, Virginia, population 502. Say it with me. Salut, right? And we, and we make small town life kind of idealistic. But Janelle and I, uh, when we were in my hometown, which is not an exceedingly small town, we just started reminiscing about our growing up. And Janelle did grow up in a very small town in the mountains of New Mexico. And she would tell stories about how when driving home, one day her father would be waiting for her on the porch, ready to fuss at her for driving too quickly through downtown because the funeral home director saw her driving that way, called her dad, and let her know. In her first church ministry placement, also in a small town, she said she returned home for lunch from lunch one day and the secretary asked her how was how was lunch at the golden skillet you know and she said how did you know well so and so saw you walking in and when we were talking she mentioned you were having lunch at the golden skillet that's life in a small town it's no secret what's happening in mary's body and eventually we know there's no way to hide it at all as a general rule, everybody is going to know everyone else's business. This is a problem for the righteous Joseph. And because we live on this side of Christmas, and because we've told this story over and over again, we may have grown maybe a little too comfortable with the way that it all plays out. We rush to the end of the story, and we know that it has something of a happy ending. We see the nativity crush, and there's Joseph. And there's Mary. And there they gaze adoringly at this baby. And we miss sort of the agony in between. Because in that old system that Joseph was living into, righteousness would have demanded something very different. It would have demanded that Mary be exposed. That a sinner so identified would need to be excluded that the standard of holiness for a community would have to be maintained. It was a tried and true, well-practiced system. Righteousness will always separate itself from sin, and righteousness will always separate from sinners. And a righteous person would not hesitate to maintain boundaries like that. And yet, almost immediately, we find Joseph hesitates. He hesitates. He can't bring himself boldly to expose the pain that this circumstance brings. He can't say the words in public, even though, yes, he is righteous. There's some really good interpretations of the nativity story out there. One of my favorites is the BBC version. It's 
It's four episodes of half-hour blocks, and it doesn't do everything well, but one of the things it captured so beautifully for me in a way that I had never really explored or rested in before was this interpersonal conflict that must have arisen between Joseph and Mary. And of course, with modern sensibilities, it's sort of a love story gone wrong where he has to overcome his feelings of personal, emotional, relational betrayal. And we don't know whether those feelings had had time to, to grow in this arranged marriage. But what we do know is that in the system of honor and shame that dominated all of community life in that time, Joseph was humiliated. Humiliated publicly by the breach of marital contract that was already in place. Everyone could see it, and everyone would know it. And now, on the edge of their seats, they must have asked, what is this righteous man going to do to maintain his righteousness? He considered all the options, eventually deciding he's going to very quietly and covertly divorce her to let her live and live her own life. But after he considered this, the scriptures tell us he had a dream. And a messenger, an angel of the Lord, appears to him in that dream. Now Joseph had to agonize for a good while on his own before God's messenger shows up and delivers some sort of way through. And you have to wonder why God would make Joseph wait until after he had agonized through this, after he'd lived with the uncertainty, after he'd felt the heartache and the heartbreak, why he had to struggle for so long before God finally speaks up in a way he can understand. Why couldn't the angel simply have come to him ahead of time and relieved all the anxiety that inevitably comes? Well, it's possible that God is not first in the business of removing our anxiety. At least that's not God's first goal in our relationship with God, or at least here in God's relationship with Joseph. Maybe it carries into our lives too. Maybe in the process of Joseph's world turning upside down, he's having to struggle with what it means to be righteous in this situation, what he ought to do. He's longing in some way to live faithfully in the midst of this while still showing compassion to this girl. So maybe Joseph was being prepared by God in that agony to come to an entirely new understanding of what righteousness was all about. Maybe the disorientation is something that God is allowing to take place in Joseph's life in order to clear the field for some new growth. Is that possible? Is that possible in your life? Maybe even right now. That's something I'm indebted to John Ortberg for pointing out to me. And I've turned over this thought more than once that if we are confused or if we're disoriented or if we're uncertain about something, maybe it's not because you have done something wrong. Maybe it is an indication that you're about to grow. And maybe what you need to do is to continue to wait on God and trust that God's going to get something in your life or get something out of your life that you are not even aware of yet. 
And we know that eventually Joseph sacrifices much. He sacrifices his reputation on the altar of this new conviction that God places in his life. It comes by way of a dream. And he starts to show us what it costs to welcome God in Christ into our lives and into our world. To welcome God into this world means that we have to reprioritize everything. Turning over our lives and our priorities, our sense of self-preservation, all of it gets laid down before God and sometimes turned upside down. And Joseph ultimately finds peace in his life when his life becomes aligned with God's life. And when his life comes right alongside God, that righteousness is where peace is found. Joseph risked a whole lot as he placed his life into what God was doing. We know that he and Mary probably lived fully in trust of what God was doing in Jesus. Because Mark, in the sixth chapter, says that Jesus had at least four brothers. And we even have their names, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And those names uh, have been Hellenized. They've been sort of turned into Greek and now translated into to English for us. So you may not quite hear the names of Israel's patriarchs that lie underneath. Jacob, Joseph, Judah, and Simeon. My hunch is if they could have had a dozen they would have named them after all the patriarchs. Some scholars suggest that the naming of those other children is a gesture of trust in anticipation that Jesus was reconstituting a new Israel, that Jesus was bringing together new work among the people. And in this renewal is something that was promised earliest in their knowing of Jesus and in their welcoming of him. And so they had staked their lives, even their family, even their names, around that hope. But it was not all roses. Again, in Mark chapter 6, 3, the people say about Jesus at one point, isn't this the son of Mary? We suspect maybe Joseph's dead by now. But even if the father died in Israel, the man would always have the respect of being named as the father of a son. He would be Jesus, son of Joseph. Jesus, bar Joseph. But to refer to a man as the son only of a mother indicated what everyone continued to talk about. An insult to Joseph and to Mary. Even decades later, here in Mark chapter 6, Maybe the people still remembered Joseph's reputation and how it suffered, even though he married Mary. We doubt they ever fully recovered. And since then, so many, many of our forebears in faith and many in our midst have made sacrifices for the sake of Jesus. They've given up their status. They've given up possessions, convenience, freedoms. Some have even sacrificed their lives Joseph, we see one who has given up his identity and he's given up his reputation for Jesus. And remember, he hasn't even seen him yet. 
It's a phenomenon I noticed in, in talking to mothers and the mother of my own children, for instance. There's an intimacy that can be achieved by someone who carries a life in their body. And Janelle said, there's so much about my boy's personality. She knew, even before they were born, how Nathaniel loved to take long naps. And Isaac just would always stretch out like this as far as he could. All, all of these things were indications that they grow aware of in ways that those of us who welcome a child later on have to come to know. And yet here, Joseph, without seeing or knowing the child to be welcomed into his household, is already staking it all for him. When he looked into the eyes of that child, Jesus, he knew he'd done the right thing. I can only assume that. Maybe it's because God decided that Jesus, who we know eventually would be called a friend of sinners, would need to be raised in a family that knew firsthand what it felt like to be regarded a spiritually second-class category. Maybe that's why Jesus had such a heart for those who lacked respect in their community. Maybe that's why Jesus so immediately would move to those who were neglected or overlooked or ostracized because he was raised by a father who sacrificed his own respectability for him. Maybe that's one reason that Jesus had compassion on women who were just scandals walking around because <laughs> he knew what it meant for his mom to walk around town and feel the looks and hear the gossip. She was single. She was pregnant. There were so many questions around the birth and all the righteous folks in town would walk the other way. Think about that. How Jesus, as he grew up, must have seen in his father the courage for a different kind of righteousness. We don't hear about Joseph by the point we reach Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. But there Jesus says, unless your righteousness passes that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law, all that old system of venerable righteousness you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And somewhere in Jesus' own head, he probably wanted to tell, and maybe did, tell the story of his own father, where he saw that kind of righteousness firsthand. My father was a person like that. It's such an odd, it is such a difficult, it is such a painful way to start a family. And at the same time, it suggests to us that when God is with us, maybe God is still calling people to be willing to die to their own reputations, to die to status, to die to comfort for the sake of love. And that's why we seek to extend our own lives out into the kingdom under the reign of this one little child. So when Joseph made that decision to wed Mary, in some ways, he thought it would probably end his reputation, end his achievement as living as a righteous man. Do you know, one of the things I've found in my own journey, my own mental health journey over the last couple of years I've talked about from time to time, is one of the crises, uh, crises that we can experience in our own minds 
uh, comes when we start acting and living out of things that really aren't our own values. And even when life is hard, even when the choices we make might be difficult, if we're living out of our own values, we discover a satisfaction and a settledness that really can't be shaken. And that's, it's true in mental health concerns. There is a spiritual and theological expression of this same idea. That when our lives come alongside, right alongside the vision, the will, and the values of God, no matter what happens out there in the world, no matter what happens to us, there is a satisfaction, there is a settledness, and there is a courage, a peace, that dictates the way we can live our lives. And so we have to really rethink what it means to live rightly. And if it means being slavishly devoted to a body of ritual law, whatever that ritual law may be for us, it's going to find its shortcomings. It will be challenged by life just like Joseph's life was. Yet if we listen and we wait patiently and expectantly for how God will share God's own will and desire for us, share us the vision and values that God would have us to embody and live out in the world, there is a righteousness that is granted to us that we never could have imagined for ourselves. And so Joseph risks it all to come alongside God's own will. And he discovers, us, uh, discovers in doing that what the Apostle Paul would later tell the people of Rome. In Romans chapter 14, he said, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So I doubt that Joseph knew fully all that child that he would adopt was about to bring to the human race. Probably didn't have the vocabulary or the, the self-awareness or the forward-thinking capacity to be able to declare that there was a new kind of righteousness that was now being brought to the people, a righteousness that brings peace. But that is what happens. That is what we yearn for. It is what we expect. It is what we pray for. And it is what we can receive a peace that passes all understanding when God with us, Emmanuel, comes to us. Let it be so. Let it be now. Let it be. As Maya leads us now in a time of reflection and response, this is an invitation for you to open your hands and your hearts to practice your generosity, to bring your offerings in worship. And it is more. It is a time to listen for the Spirit and any messengers of God who are speaking into your life today, calling you to the way that can only be led by our Maker, our Redeemer, our Sustainer. When God comes to us, it might all change. 
and it brings a peace that only God can provide.